Welcome to Zealots at the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamen. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. Give us one of those great five-star ratings. And if you have any comments or challenges, um, drop us a line on Twitter at hashtag ZealotsPod. Or you can email us at zealots at comment.org. So, you know, it's interesting, Matt, because you and I are good friends. That said... Perhaps we shouldn't be, or it's not super obvious that we would get along as much as we do, because we do have our deep differences. Matt's Christian. I'm Muslim. Matt's conservative. I'm vaguely left of center liberal, I think. Matt's white. I'm brown. Matt studies theology. I'm a political scientist. Matt's from the rural Northwest, somewhere around Seattle, if I recall. I'm from the urban Northeast. I'm one of those bad elites, I guess. So our identity markers indicate that we shouldn't be friends or that we wouldn't normally be be friends, but we are, and that's a great thing. And uh, maybe we can open up there and explore some of those differences on a topic that I'm excited to talk about which is democracy and popular sovereignty. Matt, I know there's a lot on your mind in regards to this topic. Um, Tell me, what are you, and I I think you're going to challenge me a little bit, and and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. But I think just to kind of lay out for our dear listeners, um, the particular questions we're interested in here. um, First of all, obvious to anyone who's read a newspaper in the last six or seven years, um, there are a lot of questions around democracy today. Um, Democracy itself is challenged as an institution, um, trying to justify itself, protect itself, uh, understand what it is and why it matters. And, um, And so many people have this sense that democracy is um, in crisis, Western democracy is in crisis. Now, um, Shadi, you've made a number of comments about sometimes we can be a little bit hysterical uh, in our fear about the future of democracy. But I think it goes without saying that democracy is on our minds. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to pull out today was an exploration of how Christians and Muslims uh, think about this question of of democracy, of the people's voice, that the people should have some level of sovereignty um, or say in the decisions of the state. Um, And Christians and Muslims have historically reflected on these kinds of questions of how do we consult, quote unquote, the people? Why should the people's vote matter? Why should their voice matter? Um, And what does that have to do with um, how we understand God's truth? Um, as we see it revealed in either the Bible or the Quran and the Hadith. And how do we think about the people being included in these kinds of governmental decisions? So I have two things in mind, and perhaps we can talk first of all about sort of the contemporary crisis of democracy and the questions surrounding that. And then what are some Christian and Muslim resources for thinking about 
why democracy matters or how we should approach these kinds of challenges. So, Shadi, since you have just written this book on the problem of democracy, I feel literally uh, that's just, a <laughs> that is the title. Oxford Press. You can find it on Amazon.com right now. Um, perhaps you could provide for us um, a sort of a broad picture of the major questions going on right now about democracy in the West uh, that we can then turn to the Bible, the Quran, the, the traditions of Islam and Christianity around these kinds of questions. How's that yeah. sound? Great. Yeah. And if you'll indulge me, Matt, maybe I'll start off with a little story or anecdote. It happened to me earlier today, as these things tend to do. Um, so I was looking at some of my notes on democracy. So I, I have a, a section in my note process where I just, you know, I jot things down. And it said, quote unquote, I like democracy, but I don't like people. And, uh, and I, I guess I must have been bored and I was just like, oh, this is sort of what's on my mind. Someone must have been pissing me off. But I am a little bit odd in this regard. Um, I am a I am a misanthrope of sorts in the sense that I don't love people all the time, but I'm very faithful towards a democratic idea. Another thing I want to mention, and it's really incredible that the topic of this overall podcast is something that Elon Musk himself has been talking about quite regularly. He had this tweet, which some of you might recall, where he said basically, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, which in Latin, as far as I can tell, means the voice of the people is the voice of God. So these really intense theological questions are being reflected in the very debates that we're having on a daily basis on social media platforms. And basically, I think that Elon Musk was saying or trying to say that the people are sovereign, and their preferences should be taken as something close to divine. And you can't argue with what the people will uh, and what they wish. And so when the people on Twitter voted for Donald Trump returning, he did like a poll and there were two options. He's like, listen, I got to defer to the people. What else can I do? They are the voice of God. And this does get into some very interesting questions. So, um, you know, in my book, I I call it the problem of democracy because we're, I think most of us as Americans and also more broadly are uncomfortable with certain aspects of a democratic process, primarily the fact that democracy leads to outcomes that we don't particularly love. And then the question is, how do we come to terms with that? And Elon Musk's poll um, gets at this because, um, you know, process versus outcomes. If the majority of Twitter users, obviously it's not a random sample, it's the people who actually respond to a particular tweet. But if they're saying that they want Trump to come back, should we really respect that? Um, should the voice of the people be taken as sacrosanct or even or, or sacred? Um, should we trust the people? Is there some kind of inherent wisdom of crowds? Um, but another way of looking at it is even if the people get things wrong, we should respect their right to make the wrong choice. So 
um, in that sense, we do sanctify the will of the people, even if we acknowledge that they have been led astray. Um, and so those are two different ways of looking at it. Either the people incline towards the truth or they don't incline towards the truth, but it doesn't matter because whatever they want is something we should respect because it's an expression of the collective. And we should take that as a process um, over over anything else. So those are yeah. just like a, a couple, a couple initial thoughts. So I think, I think we need to state something that's pretty, pretty obvious and clear, but also uncomfortable is that I am speaking right now with a Muslim about the value of democracy. And there are many people who would say about Muslims that is that Islam is not really a source uh, or a resource uh, for democracy. And Islam is largely a, a problem. It's a, it's a democratic problem, a threat to democracy. And um, I'm curious how you, um, as someone who studies uh, Islam, politics in the Middle East, um, you yourself are a Muslim, how do you respond to those sort of basic core challenges, prejudices around Islam's capability of democracy? Um, wh what are the sorts of yeah, things that you well, say? Look I mean, I think there's something odd about this whole question of whether Islam is compatible with democracy, because we don't usually ask that of any other religion or, or ideology. I mean, how often do you hear people say, is secularism compatible with democracy? Is atheism compatible with democracy and so forth? But there has been this preoccupation with um what seems to be an inherent tension between Islam and democracy. I don't hold that position. I don't think there's an inherent tension, although I do think there there can be an inherent tension between Islam and liberalism. But, you know, it's a little bit of a can of worms. We don't have to get into that right now. But when it comes to democracy, I would actually go one or two steps further and say not only is there not an inherent tension, but that Islam does include within it a kind of democratic spirit, if you know where to look. And I don't mean to suggest that I'm cherry picking. I think this is actually faithful to the Islamic tradition and Islamic history, but updated for the modern period. Um, so I, I was actually uh, tweeting about this earlier that um, there is the idea of the wisdom of crowds I don't know if it, I don't think it comes from Islam per se, but I sort of made the connection that it's an iteration of a prophetic hadith. So the prophet, the prophet said, my community or my ummah will not agree upon an error. And this is actually a very popular hadith. And it actually, it supports this notion that if enough Muslims believe in something, if there is something approaching um, a consensus, then we defer to that preference or that conclusion. And that's not too different than the idea of the crowds being wise, that individuals on their own might get things wrong. But if you bring enough individuals together, um, if you scale it up on a mass level, there is a kind of wisdom that the community reaches. So that's just one example of how 
um, which I think is quite different than the Christian approach, but we can maybe unpack that in a moment. The other thing well, that I would ab- say... Well, let me, let me yeah. stop you right there. And I mean, this, this whole notion of the wisdom of crowds has been sort of a, a hot topic for, you know, social scientists and, and pop writers over the last five, 10 years. Um, and in many ways, they, they have treated it like a discovery, like this new thing that they found out that if you bring diverse people together and have a conversation, you, you're going to, you know, find these better outcomes as if this is this brand new discovery that they have made. Um, whereas I think, you know, we could point to Islamic and Christian history of a great deal of wisdom of bringing together a community for conversation and discernment that, that wisdom can come out of that. Um, so yep. just, a just an interview. No, exactly. And another thing that's worth mentioning is at least in the Sunni tradition, um, the way to select the caliph before it became dynastic, but in the kind of so-called golden age of Islam, in the first four righteously guided caliphs, as they're called, the caliph was selected by notables and other and, and religious scholars and men of learning and that's not an election per se, but there is this idea of consultation, that there isn't some automatic right to rule, that you actually have to get the consent of a certain number of elites. And I and modern um, political theologians in the Islamic tradition have extended this idea of consultation to include a larger number of people. So instead of propertied elites, you can kind of move towards universal suffrage. Or to put it differently, you can move towards the ummah. The ummah in Arabic is the community of believers that every believer should have a say because they are part of this, um, I don't want to say sacred endi, but an elevated endi. These are the believers. And they matter and they should be consulted with. So there's a number of the, those sorts of things that you can draw on, and um, which isn't to say that you can't draw on authoritarian precedents in Islamic history or the Islamic tradition, but ultimately we have a choice of what to emphasize. And I think these are very, um, you know, very strong precedents. And then the last thing I'll say, in a previous episode, we talked about how the Quran can't speak for itself. We need human beings to interpret the text. Similarly, uh, when it comes to Sharia or Islamic law, who decides what that actually is? Ultimately, you need a collective to decide. So again, this allows democracy to come into the picture because the community of believers through their vote, through their right to participate, they can give voice to what they think the Sharia should be. Because ultimately, um, we don't know for sure what God wants in this moment. We don't know exactly how God ideally would want Muslims to implement Islamic law. So at the end of the day, the people need to have a say. That's catchy. End of the day, people need to have a say. I like it. (laughs) It's... No, it's How not. does that all strike you, <laughs> Matt? It's no, I think it's great. And I think what you're what you're doing there is you're um you're not sort of romanticizing uh Muhammad or the the early um caliphates as this, you know, direct democracy in which voting is happening and there's this, 
you know, beautiful, open and free debate. And, um, but what you're, you, what you're hinting at or what you're showing is that you have sort of, uh, you have democratic practices and virtues being developed slowly over time, this understanding of consultation, this desire for some form of consensus and consent, um, that uh, a sort of questioning of singular rule and singular access to God. Um, and that is, you know, what I would argue is democracy depends upon uh, citizens who are capable of, um, of developing consensus, of engaging in conversation and consent and uh, seeking uh, to to listen and exchange views that democracy depends upon these basic skills, um, that are often developed in religious communities. Um, and, you know, I think within churches, you know, we have our own little politics within every little church. And I can imagine somewhat similar in a, um, you know, in a synagogue or in a mosque, there being, you know, political exchanges, of who gets to decide what. And um, these spaces, these sacred spaces, can be places in which we are um, taking turns speaking, um, trying to learn how to listen, um, and trying to discern together what God's will is. And in a way, these, these sacred spaces can be classrooms <laughs> uh, in which uh, citizens are working out what it means to, to give and take, um, which is, it seems to me to be a, um, a skill that is, um, very much needed in democracy, but isn't very available to us today in our current political environment. Yeah. Um, that sort of yeah. seeking of consensus. Well, let me turn the question over to you. Cause I know we've discussed this and I, I think I have a handle on it, but it is worth delving into, which is how we reconcile popular sovereignty with divine sovereignty. Because ultimately, most believing Muslims and Christians would agree that in the end, ultimately, God is sovereign in the sense that God is the ultimate source of authority. And this is where sometimes an authoritarian read can come into our faith traditions where people say, well, um, what the people want might actually contradict God's will or God's law, and therefore God should take precedence over the whims of the people. That's another way of looking at it, of course. And there is a tension here, and I'm curious from a Christian perspective how— how do we come to terms with this? What is the resource we have to resolve that tension? Yeah. And of course, it goes without saying that Christians, much like Muslims, disagree uh, about democracy, and we disagree about popular sovereignty. Um, so what I'm about to share about a Christian perspective on democracy and popular sovereignty is not true for all Christians. Um, just like for you, it's not true for all Muslims. Um so I think it's, it's important to say that my uh, approach to these things is that um, I cannot accept popular sovereignty all the way down to the ground. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, 
all popular sovereignty is dependent upon its congruence with God's law and God's justice. So if the masses vote for something uh, terribly unjust, um, that is not a, a sovereign or legitimate um, political act. So that, because ultimately only God is sovereign at the, at the very end of the day, ultimately only God is sovereign. So um, I'm committed to democracy, but not all the way down in the same way that I'm committed to who God is um, and what God wants. And so that's, that's a tension, I think, but I think that it's really actually quite helpful because if you believe that God alone is sovereign, then that lowers the stakes of what democracy is all about. Um, because you can begin to see democracy as a tool, um, that is not perfect. That is not going to provide you with every answer and is democracy is not going to solve every problem and democracy will make mistakes from time to time. Um, but it is a helpful, imperfect tool, um, by which we can govern. Um, it is not, uh, access to God's perfect will. Um, an election, the results of an election are not going to um, tell you exactly what God wills or God doesn't will. And that's and so, okay. Yeah. It doesn't need that's to. Okay. It doesn't need to. So yeah, I'm curious how you respond to that. I mean, my argument would be that monotheism, uh, rightly understood, if God is truly sovereign, um, lowers, um, lowers the stakes and lowers the, the sort of value that you place in, you know, in the vote as, um, as ultimate. Yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons that both of us tend to say that religion actually helps you to delay judgment, to let go, to chill, to lower your shoulders, um, or to not hunch them up. I guess we've used that analogy before because there is something else that is transcendent. And if you do, I do, you know, if you believe that God is sovereign, you, you can sort of, um, project some of it, some things can be left to God. Democracy, the here and now, our normal everyday politics doesn't have to give us ultimate meaning. So I think this conversation about democracy and where it fits into the broader metaphysics is another example of how we can see religion as a way to lower the existential stakes to chill, yeah. uh, if you will. So, I might so be, though, a, yeah, I might be a little bit more radical than you, though, yeah. um, in the sense that, um, okay, let me let me put this out there. I think that well, freedom and democracy are different, but I think that another way of looking at democracy superiority over the alternatives is to say that authoritarianism twists the soul, it corrupts the spirit, it, it breaks human beings, it makes them other than what God intended them to be. So I think there is, in probably in all monotheisms, a built-in anti-despotism, which isn't the same thing as democracy. But yeah. I think there is an understanding of freedom and agency and choice yeah. that if you are God's creation, 
that means that there is an inherent dignity and that means that you should be able to choose and you shouldn't you shouldn't be a servant under other men the rule of other men so a dictator for example there is that kind of anti-authoritarian impotence so i think there is a really a liberatory um potential in religious yeah. traditions because we say no you know I, I, no man can control us or tell us what to do or how to live because we are ultimately only accountable to God. Now, that idea can be taken to an extreme. Yeah, and but I think it's right. Yeah. And let, let me interrupt you here because I want to I want to jump on that because yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And you know, Shadi, you got to quote the hadith, so now I'm going to quote the Bible. Yes, <laughs> um, just to just to help you know, make that particular point. So for the people of Israel, right, they are, <clears throat> they're enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh, your forefather, right? They're from Egypt. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so they're, they're, ensl they're enslaved in Egypt and, um, God breaks them out and brings them into the promised land. And an important aspect of Israel's flourishing has to do with, um, that, that they are no longer slaves, but now they have a land of their own. And um, an important part of being the people of God is um, you have a land of your own to work on, on your own, and you're able to take some level of responsibility, right? A slave doesn't own anything. A, a slave has no sovereignty. Every aspect of their sovereignty is swallowed up in the Pharaoh, in the despot. Um, and in Israel, um, God's sovereignty is distributed to the people. So the people are now uh, stewards of their land. Um, and as, when the people come together, they come together not as slaves, but as, as free men and women who have uh, a level of sovereignty over their work and over their lives. And in ancient Israel, the the God's design for them was that the king uh, would not take their land from them, that they would not revert to um, the despotism of Egypt, but the king would uh, enable them to live on the land in peace. And so there are stories in which um, the king becomes a despot in Israel and starts to take their land from them or the wealthy take the land from the poor. And this is always understood to be a regression back to the ways of Pharaoh. And God's desire is for, um, you know, the men and women of Israel to, to live free on their own land. And, and that's a really important sort of foundational aspect to Israelites' uh, political imagination that the king does not own everything. Uh, furthermore, that power is distributed between the king, the prophet, and the priest uh, within Israel. So power is not completely concentrated within the palace. Um, and from time to time, the prophet will come to the palace and will, will speak words of critique and challenge. Um, and uh, the priests themselves have... have a specific role within um, the life of Israel that is not owned by the palace. And so you have this, this understanding of pushing power down and pushing power out. 
Um, that's really important. And, and I think, so it's all to say that we see this in, in ancient Israel, we see this in, you know, in some of the developments of the, the early caliphate, if this, this understanding that power needs to be pushed down, it needs to be distributed. And this understanding that the wisdom of the people does matter for the faithfulness of the people. I do want to mention a little wrinkle. Um, and it is interesting that I got you, Matt, to read Sayyid Qutb's uh, Milestones, which is seen as one of the radical texts in the kind of modern um, Islamic uh, Islamic political um, approach. And, um, you know, some of you might recall that after 9-11, Qutb was discussed as the godfather of terrorism, which I think was generally unfair and a little bit of a distorted read of history. But yeah, he was pretty radical in part because, you know, he was tortured under a dictatorship and that's where he started to get a little bit intense, shall we say. But it's interesting that when I was rereading that with you, Matt, I was struck by how many times he mentions the word freedom, because you think someone who's radical, who has a really strict notion of implementing Islamic law, why would they emphasize freedom? And I just pulled this up right now, and I do want to mention this as a cautionary tale of taking this idea of man only being accountable to God and not to other men to its logical extreme. Qutb says this in Milestones. It is not the intention of Islam to force its beliefs on people, but Islam is not merely belief. As we have pointed out, Islam is a declaration of the freedom of man from servitude to other men. Which sounds great. That sounds, you know, freedom, yes. Um, freedom or chains, we'll, we'll fight and to, to ensure that this freedom is ours and that we are not under the rule of, of any mere mortal. But then that can be taken to justify rebellion, to justify declaring man-made man governments or any kind of temporal government that you disagree with as being contrary to God's will. Like there's almost a way where you it kind of folds, like, you, you take it to an extreme and then it folds back to this dilemma of, uh, of seeing no no um, mortal or temporal government as legitimate. And then you can sort of be in this situation of perpetual rebellion um, if you have these very exacting standards of what it what constitutes legitimate rule. Anyway, um, I with that in mind, I do want to unpack a couple tensions in all of this and ask you, Matt, um, about aspects of the Christian tradition. I how how would you my understanding from reading folks like Abraham Kuyper is that there is a process of delegation so God is ultimately sovereign and then the office holder the prime minister or the president stands immediately under God's sovereignty and in that sense the office of the presidency is sanctified if if I understand correctly but I do wonder, does that follow in a godless society? Because Kuiper was still living in a predominantly Christian society, so there was a built-in expectation that Christian ethics or values would be inculcated, that 
those wouldn't be completely pushed to the side. But I do wonder if there is a tension if if you as a believing Christian, let's say you look at a quote-unquote atheistic government or a very secular government as you have in Western Europe where very small percentages of the population are Christian believers in the present day, then is it still fair to say that, say, that, well, the French president falls, stands immediately under God's sovereignty and is sanctified in his exercise of power? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I think that... <clears throat> The way that I would like, let's just, let's, let's keep France out of this for a second. Let's oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> too right. easy. Probably I mean, better. Let's just say, you know, we had an atheist president or, yeah. um, you know, here, here in America, I think that from my, my Kuiper perspective, so Abraham Kuiper argues that the role of the state is to establish justice. That is what the state is there for. The, the role of the state is not to establish worship of God. Um, but justice. And so I can imagine, um, an atheist president establishing justice in America in, in a variety of ways, not perfectly, but I can imagine, uh, an atheist president doing that. And I can imagine, and I don't actually have to imagine a Christian president, uh, establishing injustice in America. And so, um, moreover, I can imagine that God would use an atheist president, uh, for his purposes. Um, and so I can give thanks, um, for God's use of, of an atheist or a Christian president and the rubric or even a Muslim use, president or a Muslim president. Exactly. The I mean, rubric, we had one to be fair, but. <laughs> But the rubric I would use to judge my leaders is uh, a biblical understanding of justice, a basic, how are the poor being treated? So Psalm 71 in scripture talks about the good King in which, um, in which the, the poor are treated justly and the land flourishes. And, you know, throughout scripture, we get pictures of what human flourishing looks like. Uh, and what justice looks like. And so legitimacy under God comes from your pursuit of justice. It does not come from who you, uh, you know, who you worship particularly. Yeah. And, and this means that in some sense, if the state, the state itself isn't a kind of necessary evil, it's something that can be seen positively from the Christian tradition because God is holding society together through common grace and is using the state to do so. Would that be, would that be correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So like my city has stop signs in it and it has a sewer system and a school district. And these are basic functions of the, the government right here in my local community that produce real flourishing. Like I am grateful for stop signs and I'm grateful for sewer systems and, uh, the people who instituted them, I don't know if they were Christian or not. Um, but I can give thanks to God that God has blessed me <laughs> with stop signs and school systems and, um, and so forth. Uh, and, and that's because of that understanding of common grace. 
So, yeah. So when I have to vote, when I have to vote, my primary concern is not, is this, does this person go to my church or my denomination? It is, does this person seek, um, seek justice in the way that smells and sounds like the justice that I hear about in scripture? What happens though, if there's an atheist or a non-believer who commits injustice, does their atheism have any effect on the final assessment? Because it's easy to say, well, if an atheist kind of upholds biblical values, then the outcome is still ultimately just, and therefore God's common grace is still operating in mysterious ways. But, you know, but I, I imagine there are some Christians who could argue that without God's guidance, without having that intrinsic belief in Christ or God or whatever it might be, that the atheist might be led astray and might be led to commit grave injustice, then that then delegitimizes and desanctifies the office. Yes, yes. So I think I think that is possible. And I don't think that <clears throat> what I'm yeah, so don't hear what I'm not saying here. Um Oh. Um, a president's <laughs> faith, yeah, reverse that. A, a, a president's faith does matter. Um, it will impact the way in which they rule and the way in which they make decisions. Um, what I'm trying to say is that their faith does not guarantee that they will seek either justice or injustice. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So back to this understanding of the people, I'm wondering how do how do we understand uh, our definition of the people, because um, I think both Islam and Christianity have a tough question to answer, as all Democrats do, is who counts as the people? So you mentioned the Ummah, right? That my, for Muhammad says that uh, my people will never be in error. Um, and on the Christian side, we believe that Christians have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit of God has uh, united with the church and that the Christian church is the body of Christ in the world. So we both have this, and they're different, but we both have this high view of our people, right? I have a, I have a high view of the Christian church as the body of Christ in the world. And you have a high view of the Ummah, the, the, uh, the Muslim community as the people. And it seems to me that one of our challenges is, well, then <clears throat> it's not hard to argue that, well, if the church is the body of Christ in the world, we should only let Christians vote. <laughs> hmm. And if, if the Ummah is the community of Muhammad, right? and they are the ones who have access to the truth, perhaps only Muslims should vote. So my next question that I'd love for us to wrestle with is, how do we think about the people as uh, beyond our own community? And this is related to our last episode of, you know, including heretics in democracy. Um, so I'm wondering, well, first of all, do you accept the, the question? <laughs> <laughs> or do you understand what I'm what Look, I'm yeah, totally. Yeah. And and there is there is certainly a tension there. And um you know, even if we look at one of the more progressive um 
Islamic thinkers of the modern period, Rashid Hanushi of Tunisia. In in some of his earlier work in the 90s, he actually was seen as a democratizing force in Islamic thought because he basically made the argument of vicegerency, the idea that God's sovereignty is delegated to the community, and then the community acts upon that kind of delegative honor, if you will. But for that, for in, in, his, in, in his earlier work, he still limited that to believers, that popular sovereignty only worked if the community accepted that they were delegates. But naturally, if you're a secularist or an atheist or a Christian, you're not necessarily going to start with that premise of being one of God's vicegerents or delegates on the earth. So there is certainly um, there is certainly a challenge, uh, but again, you know, there's precedents that one can draw, on, and it's worth noting that Renouchi himself did expand the idea of delegation and vicegerency to include the citizens writ large. Um, I mean, I think part of it here is that we're all products of the modern state, and we're all products of the idea of modern citizenship. So you just change your understanding of the citizen, and that might not be very theologically sound, or the, the, the line isn't maybe super direct, but I think we have to acknowledge that in the pre-modern universe, um, the people who constituted the community were different than what constitutes a community in the modern period in a world of nation-states. But even if you look at the prophet's time, and this is part of how Hanushi squares the circle uh, more recently over the past 10 years, he draws on the constitution of Medina. So this was when Prophet Muhammad was ahead of a proto-state, and he brought in non-Muslims as part of this, basically this charter, um, including including um, uh, Jews and other monotheists. So, again, it depends what you want to look at in Islamic history to kind of say whether or not the community can be broadened to include non-Muslims. And certainly there are extremists or people who are a bit more radical who might um, not love the modern idea of citizenship. But ultimately, I think some of it has to do with practicality, that there's just no way to constitute a modern society um, and maybe this is a bit of a cop out. Um, and <laughs> you see me um, and this is maybe me bit. as a political scientist speaking, <laughs> but um, circumstances breed necessity. Yeah. Um, and circumstances push you to reinterpret your own text. So if we talked about Muslims five centuries ago, they're going to have a more narrow, exclusive view. But if we're talking about Muslims now, the vast majority of them have gotten on board with modern conceptions of citizenship, because that's the air that we breathe. Uh, that is a bit of a cop out, but please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, a, a slight turn. Um, I want to ask you your thoughts on this particular quote from a famous 20th century uh, political theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. Okay. Here's what he has to say about democracy He says, Humanity's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but humanity's inclination for injustice makes democracy necessary. And uh, what he's pointing to here is 
two different ways in which Christians have made the case for democracy. One is that humanity is so good and wise and humanity thirsts for justice. And so it is, it is wise to include people in discussions about what justice should look like. The other is a very low view of humanity, which says, you know, humanity is capable of great injustice and evil. And so it is necessary that we spread power out. Um, and you have this throughout Christian history of these two different arguments for uh, democracy, the separation of powers, the rule of law, constitution, and one with a very high view of humanity is humanity is so good that we are we are capable of this democratic process. The other is humanity is so evil, it, it has to be involved in this democratic process. So I'm curious, as, as a Muslim, as a political scientist, uh, which um, do either sides of those, that argument resonate with you more? Or yeah, how do you reflect on that, that quote? Yeah, well, in the, in the Islamic tradition, the state was generally conceived in a, in a somewhat minimal way. And the priority of the state was to preserve enough freedom for people to practice their religion. That was one of the fundamental prerequisites um, that people should be able to believe and act on their belief. Um, and if that's being blocked, then the state is no longer legitimate. So, but that minimal conception came out of circumstance because after the early golden period, so to speak, there was dynastic rule, there was repression, there was civil conflict. So a growing number of Muslim scholars gave up on the idea of a utopian premise, that there was no way to return to the ideal early period where you had the prophet's companions um, governing directly, drawing on their personal relationship and their knowledge of of the prophet's um of the prophet's commandments and and preferences, so you know the state the state becomes a fact that you have to work around, and you don't want to entrust the state with too much power, specifically the executive authority, and this is why the clerics in the Islamic tradition were semi-autonomous and had quite a bit of independence from the caliph, um, because they were the repositories of God's law. They were in some sense, um, uh, I don't want to say the legislative branch because I guess, you know, ultimately God would be seen as the legislative branch, but the ones who were entrusted to interpret God's law and therefore they were the ones who could regulate the executive authority because they had knowledge of that law. So that's, I mean, so that's, I think, a practical a practical accommodation, which is that you see the executive authority as necessary, but you also don't want to endow the executive with um, the ability to determine like creedal and theological content. They're the ones who have to, you know, make sure the trains run on time. They're not supposed to be kind of opining on the nature of God's existence in a kind of metaphysical sense. Here's a big question. Would you say that Islam has a, has a higher view of humanity in general, in terms of its humanity's reason and like, Ability yeah, yeah. to know the good. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sin doesn't figure um, as predominantly 
and you know we don't have a, a conception of original sin and we should definitely have an entire episode on the role of reason and the tensions between reason and revelation yeah. but certainly um there is this idea of fitra in the islamic tradition which means man's innate disposition or his nature his inherent nature and the idea is that this nature is in some sense uncorrupted and then it's actually society it's actually um sinful individuals who can then um take man away from his natural state um so i think that uh yeah you'll you'll often hear this idea of fitra raised by by muslims quite a bit and that's actually one of the reasons that i find this a little bit annoying but some muslims will refer to converts not as converts but as reverts in other words they're returning to their natural state the way that God intended them to be. I think that's a little bit presumptuous um, and problematic for reasons we don't have to get into right now. Um, one of the reasons is I don't consider theological error to be the worst thing in the world. If people want to believe in the wrong thing theologically, you know, there's worse fates. But, you know, that's a <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> but that this idea of, of nature and returning to one's nature and not having it be corrupted, I think, is definitely one that's there. But maybe this is an interesting point of contrast, because as we've talked about a little bit in previous episodes, the notion of depravity and the fact of sin does figure predominantly in the Christian tradition, more so than Islam, at least, especially if you're a Calvinist, as you are, Matt. So I'm curious, like, how would a proper Calvinist um, respond to this idea of a kind of natural inclination or disposition that's positive. So a, a Calvinist, you know, Calvinists are well known for their their lower view of of human nature and um, the human capacity to know and do uh, what is right. And so I think a, a Calvinistic reflection on democracy is, you know, what you've been hearing from me, which is um, be careful not to expect too much from democracy. Be careful not to expect too much from the people and not to expect democracy to fix people because ultimately the only thing that will fix the human individual or the human community is communion with God, is becoming right with God. And so anything short of that is is going to disappoint you in some way. So a Calvinist is just going to want to to lower expectations. Um, however, Calvinists have played a, a very large role historically in the development of democracy. Um, and it's precisely because, not simply because they have a, a lower view of humanity, um, but also because they have practiced certain um, democratic modes within their churches. So they are appointing elders um, within their churches um, who appoint a pastor, who hold a pastor accountable. And then they develop these federations of, of churches, these networks of churches that hold other local churches accountable. So you have centuries of Calvinists uh, delegating authority, holding rulers accountable, um, developing consensus and sort of engaging in these democratic practices as well. Um, so they, they end up, you know, in, pro, in Calvinist New England, 
um, working some of those things out. So the, the American revolution is in many ways sort of an amalgamation of the secular enlightenment, but also a, a Calvinist political imagination, um, coming together in a, in a somewhat interesting way. Um, so, you know, that's, that's an important aspect of, of thinking about these things. And, and I, I love that quote from Niebuhr because it seems to me it brings up two important aspects of democracy that democracy does require, um, a sort of a humbled, uh, a humbled, uh, and a prudent perspective on the possibilities of politics and political wisdom. But I think democracy does require some level of hope, some level of confidence, some level of passion even. Um, and, and so I think both of those things need to be held together. You know, cynicism and bitterness is, is no way to sustain a democratic life. Um, yeah. And I think back to those years of Jon Stewart and the daily show, right. Of like, when we were in college, I don't know. Did you watch The Daily Show a lot when you were in I college? I did. I did. Yeah, the John yeah. Stewart period. I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say John Stewart Mill, but then you shifted. <laughs> John Stewart. No, no. John Stewart and The Daily Show, which you know, I think as a poli sci major, you know, I, I loved watching The Daily Show, but I was always, I had this haunting sense in the back of my mind that 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 sort of cynicism, um, and sort of a dark bitterness. Um, that ran through the daily show ultimately is not good for democracy that you can't sustain democracy just upon sort of a side eye that you give to your, your fellow citizens that, uh, democracy depends upon a, a somewhat of a spirit of optimism as well. So yeah, I don't know how I, that all hits you. No, that, I, but I think that you can have hope without cynicism and I think that maybe the broader point to make here is that in our respective traditions, the tensions are very much there. And, you know, I, I don't think either of us want to descend into apologetics and say that Islam and Christianity are democratic religions. That would be silly, um, because obviously through much of Christian and Islamic history, democracy was not the prevailing system of government, yeah. naturally. But it is to say that Tensions are there and you can't really, so you can't have a democratic spirit without having the possibility of authoritarianism, that these things sort of depend on their opposite in a similar way as hope depends on cynicism. We don't know what hope is unless we see the alternative. But I think your your point about John Stewart's really interesting because it gets at this bro this broader disdain for ordinary politics or the people that if only we could rise above the disappointments of ordinary politics and we could have um, wisdom and good thinking and people who know the truth and the right information. And it's, it's a fantasy of what politics is. And it pretends that we can sort of transcend the messiness of politics. And I think that, you know, the monotheistic faiths do have a very real sense of the fallibility of man, um, you know, maybe to different degrees and there's different points of emphasis, but by definition, men are flawed. And then by extension, anything that men do 
will be flawed, including democracy, including politics, whatever it might be. And I think that there's this anti-utopian strain in the monotheistic faiths that oftentimes you don't have with secular faiths. Yeah. That there's almost a sense of you need to find the utopia in the here and now because there is nothing beyond the here and now. And an extreme case of this is obviously Marxism. But even if you look at the hyper-wokeism of our present period, some of that does – it has this kind of intensity of feeling and impatience. Yeah. And impatience is fine. Um, what did Luke Bretherton say about, um, I think he had this phrase, impatient endurance, that is characteristic of the religious mind of the believer. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I should note that I was going through Luke Bretherton's book today, prepping for our conversation. That's a, oh. that's a really, a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, oh, are you talking about Christ in the common life? Yes. Okay, yeah. well, let's put a link. We'll definitely make sure to have a link to that in the show notes. I haven't actually read it yet, but I do want to because I think it's very Absolutely. relevant to this so, conversation. I mean, yeah, that, that book is a little more, you know, academic political theology. So if you're looking for a little more basic Christian introduction to reflections on democracy, David Coises' book, uh, Political Visions and Illusions, uh, has a chapter specifically on uh, Christian reflections on democracy itself in which he he provides uh, a Christian praise for democracy, but also a Christian critique and a Christian warning for that as well. Um, yeah, but I, I do actually want to return to John Stewart just for a moment since I criticized him. I think it's also important to note that I don't think it's an accident that he's, he's also Jewish and that his, um, his humor does and his his cynicism also has a tinge of hope to it as well um that it's not totally dark and that there is this resource within faith um to have a bit of a a dark humor at the mystery of the human condition i guess i would say and um and i think that the jewish community has cultivated that well um staring darkness right in the face, you know, post Holocaust. But I, it, that would be another interesting thing for us to reflect on is, um, religion, humor, and the darkness of politics, I guess. Um, how does dark humor work, um, for people who are faithful, um, in the face of, uh, yeah, political injustice and difficulty? Well, it does make me think that one of the fundamental differences between Judaism and Islam is that Jews didn't really have much of a history of self-government, of ruling themselves. And after the destruction of the seventh, uh, after the destruction of the Second Temple, and I guess seventy-four A.D., that um, Jews lived as a minority under the rule of others, and that shapes how Jews view um, the exercise of power, where I think with, with Muslims, they can look back at different parts of their history and there can be an optimism because there was a period of normative Islamic governance. And I think that this goes back to, I think, something that I, that I, I think is really important, which is theology 
is a product of circumstance. It's not just a product of theological investigation, because theologians themselves, as mere mortals, they are being shaped by their own particular context. They are being shaped by the politics of their time. So if you're a theologian thinking about the legitimate exercise of power, if you are in a position where your co your your co-believers are governing that they are ruling themselves muslims governing muslims that's going to be very different that's going to have an influence on you in a way that uh jews living as a minority under the rule of others um won't i think that's just worth keeping in mind and we can maybe expand on that in future episodes yeah. of how um uh, how religions are shaped by their own history in these very profound ways yeah well, With one that. other, yeah, we we do need to wrap up, but I think you know what, one other thing I wanted to loop in here is an important aspect for the health of democracy are people who are asking um, who is not at the table, who is not being included in this democratic deliberation, and uh, for me, when I look at at the Bible, I see this desire to open the community to. Um, the widow to the orphan to the foreigner uh, in Israel, and then in the early church, once again, to open the community beyond um, the people of Israel to um, all these different ethnicities throughout the Roman Empire. There's this desire to include more in this definition of the people and the voice of the people. And in order for democracy to flourish, uh, Today, we need more citizens who are interested in including more voices, who are making sure that um, all of these voices are being heard um, and not being excluded. And so for me and my faith, I find my faith prompting me to ask who's being left out. Um, and I encourage our listeners to reflect on that as well. Who is um, being excluded from the democratic process and why, um, based upon their um, their identity or whatever else? Preach. Um, Preach, yeah. brother. Well, <laughs> that is a very good note on which to end. Um, thanks to you, dear listeners, for tuning in to Zealots at the Gate. If you like what you heard, uh, do consider listening to our previous episodes if you've missed them and if you want to learn more about comment magazine which is a wonderful magazine you can go to comment.org where, where you'll find illuminating essays on politics culture and faith we do want to hear from you so please do connect with us over twitter at my handle shadi hamid and matthew kamink's handle matthew kamink uh, do recall that his last name is spelled in the Dutch way. Or write to us at zealots at comment.org or use the hashtag zealotspod. And I do encourage you to do that because I do regularly check the hashtag to see if anyone's saying anything. So if you want to if you wanna put out a question or a criticism, please feel free. Expect a sincere exchange. Our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comment Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, and editorial direction by Ann Snyder. 
I'm Shadi Hamid. And, and you Matthew are. Matthew <laughs> And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. Mm-hmm.